0: This show is supported with a grant from the Claude Worthington-Benedim Foundation. There's your train coming.
1: (laughs) Hey there, this is Trey Kaye, and from West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX, this is Us and Them the show that tells the stories about the things that divide us. I was looking out for the train because it has defined the town of Kermit, West Virginia for decades. About 350 people live in this Mingo County town. And if you just walk a few feet over the Tug River, you're in Kentucky. Debbie Priest grew up in Kermit.
2: They're great people, great people. If something happens to someone in the community, everybody in the county gathers, comes to them, and you know they say it takes a community to raise a child. Where I live in Carmel, it's okay. We have one little restaurant, a bank, phar- one pharmacy, and an auto store.
1: Is there a traffic light?
2: No, absolutely, <laughs> never has been.
1: In the beginning, Kermit was a quintessential coal town. Eric Eyre is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, formerly of the Charleston Gazette-Mail.
3: Kermit's got, you know, steep hills, and you've got a a river that runs through it, and you've got railroad uh, that runs directly through town, shakes your houses when you're sitting at home, and when the trains come by, when the coal trains come by. Mingo County... uh, Probably people know it's the birthplace of the Hatfield and McCoy feud.
1: Yep, you heard that right. This is where the Hatfield family of West Virginia spent decades feuding with the McCoys of Kentucky. But there's another
3: thing that's made Kermit infamous. It seems like every couple of years there's some sort of scandal regarding corruption, voter fraud, or kickbacks, or bribery, that sort of
1: thing. And Debbie and the Priest family have been involved in a lot of it. In the late 1980s, some members of the Priest family sold weed and cocaine. At the time, Debbie was a member of the city council and married to the chief of police. Her father was the fire chief. But after a big undercover drug bust involving the FBI, more than 50 people went to jail including many members of the priest's family.
2: You know, I'm not really white. I have a bad history, and something very tragic happened to our family. I mean, it was no secret that my, my family was doing it, and, and because of the payoffs and the money, you know, everybody just turned a blind eye. And I felt like they encouraged it by turning a blind eye and taking payoffs from my family.
1: As the coal economy in this part of West Virginia slowed down, drugs have played a defining role. Forty years ago, it was illegal drugs. More recently, it's been prescription painkillers. Kermit has made national news at the height of the opioid crisis when it was flooded with pills. In six years, from 2006 to 2012, pharmaceutical distributors sent 780 million hydrocodone and oxycodone pills to West Virginia. In three years, 12 million hydrocodone pills were shipped by various drug distributors into Kermit. And in a two-year period, drug distributors sent nearly 9 million prescription opioid pills to Kermit. All of that in a town of about 350 people. The painkillers that once made it possible for minors to keep on working were now being overprescribed and abused. It didn't take long for all those pills to take a toll. In 2016, one of Debbie Priest's 13 siblings, William Bull Priest, died from an oxycodone overdose. Two years later, her brother Timmy Dale also OD'd. Debbie vowed that her brother's deaths would not be viewed as just another overdose. Reporter Eric Eyre wanted to know how a tight-knit town like Kermit became the epicenter for opioids. As he dug into the story, he uncovered a world of corruption and pills and families being torn apart. Eric's reporting resulted in a Pulitzer Prize and a new book, Death in Mudlick. Mudlick is a small community where Bull lived. The book is about the Priest family and how Kermit has been flooded with opioids. The first question Eric wanted to answer is
3: how could this happen? It happened with uh, a number of different groups getting together, um, taking part in it. Uh, You had the manufacturers who were advertising the drugs as non-addictive. You had the distributors who were just shipping the drugs from the uh, manufacturing facilities to warehouses and then to pharmacies. You had the the pharmacists that were dispensing the drugs, and you had the doctors who were running something called pain pill clinics, which were basically uh, fronts for just a massive distribution of prescriptions.
1: At its peak, Kermit was getting more than 31,000 pills for every person who lived in the town. How could no one have noticed this in such a small town? Debbie Priest says people knew. I don't think it was unnoticed. I
2: don't know how it could have been unnoticed unless you just buried your head in the sand. I knew there was a problem just by the traffic and, and the people going to these doctors and and me knowing people and them talking to me. I don't know, maybe because I was a worldly person, and I knew, and a lot of people trusted me and, and talked to me and um, came to me for help a lot, but I just don't, I don't think, you, I don't know how you could not have known it.
1: Remember how Debbie described Kermit earlier with only one post office, one restaurant, no traffic lights, and a pharmacy? It was called Save Right. That very pharmacy filled tens of thousands of prescriptions
3: prescriptions that weren't always legitimate. There were about 70 different places across the state of West Virginia called pain clinics. A number of them were just sham clinics. They had uh, doctors that were uh, affiliated with the facilities, but they weren't necessarily there. Here in Charleston, we had one that I drove by every day for lunch. Uh, We got a report about what was going on there, and they would have these... uh, Facilities where you had ex-cops working at them, they were uh, taking blood pressure and temperatures of patients, but the doctors weren't even there and they were printing out bogus prescriptions by literally, you know, one a minute at some, some of these pain clinics. As long as you paid in cash, you'd get a prescription and then they would steer you to a particular pharmacy that would fill that prescription.
1: Eric found out people would come to that Save Right Pharmacy from Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and even Florida and Flint, Michigan, to get their prescriptions filled. And that's where the traffic that Debbie mentioned comes in.
3: It got so bad at one point that they, uh, people were complaining about the waits to get their prescription opioids. So they, the owner of the pharmacy, uh, Jim Wooley, he set up a camper trailer on the site and started selling hot dogs and hamburgers and soda pop. That sounds like a then county he, fair or something like that. Yeah, and then inside they had um you know, they had hot buttered popcorn inside. When you
1: see cars that are backing up far on the highway and and, and I guess there's trailers outside doesn't anybody around there raise a suspicion? Doesn't the state, state police, do they drive by and, and ask what's going on here?
3: Well, first off, the local police in Kermit, they only had one police officer, the police chief. Uh, so he wasn't going to do anything. And then the local, you know, they have a Mingo County Sheriff's Department. But a lot of their officers had connections. They're, in one case, one of the chief deputies of the Mingo County sheriff's department, his wife was a farm tech at the, at the pharmacy. So they, they certainly weren't going to do anything.
1: Eric, America is a big place and there are parts of, of, of our nation that has more wealth than West Virginia. Why was it that there would be such an intense targeting of West Virginia and particularly this part of the state that is predominantly coal miners and coal miners in many ways are a dying breed?
3: Yeah, well, we were definitely a particular vulnerable population and and these companies realized that. And I don't know if they set out and put a bullseye on us, but once they saw the numbers that were coming out of West Virginia, the appetite for these prescription painkillers. Then it was just unbridled shipments. There's been documents that have people saying, sell, sell, sell uh, from the corporate uh, manufacturers. And then you have situations where there was a warehouse in Washington Courthouse where people that worked for McKesson Corporation, which is one of the largest shippers of opioids to Appalachia, They started raising questions and they were just, you know, saying, hey, look, look what's going on in Kermit, West Virginia. And, you know, we need to get on this as soon as possible. But the higher ups never got on it. They were just, uh, you know, they were seeing the sales numbers and going through the roof and they weren't going to do anything to stop it.
1: Eric, when when you say that, what goes through my mind is if we weren't talking about an opioid drug problem right now. And we were, say, talking about the, the history of the coal industry in West Virginia. In a way, you just, in, in your answer there, you kind of described another situation where there is a, a, a company outside who is sending a product into the state that is harming people who live here. And yet the money for that is going away. Am I missing something?
3: No, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I refer to them in the book in a place as corporate uh, pill pushers. And not only that, not only were they sending the pills here, you know, just last month an email was unsealed in the, in the federal case in which the cities and counties are filing suit against the distributors.
1: Eric told me that in this email there was a parody song about Hillbillies, sung to the tune of the Beverly Hillbillies theme. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his habit fed. Then one day he was looking at some tube and saw that Florida had a lax attitude. About pills, that is. Hillbilly heroin, O.C. Pills, that is. Buy some pills. Take a load home. Y'all come back now, you hear? You're all invited back next week to this location. Just reading these words makes me cringe. Pillbilly, that is. Set a spell. Take your shoes off. Y'all come back now, Here. After Bull's death, Debbie was mad. She didn't want people to think of her brother as just a pillbilly or a, a pillhead.
2: He was trying to make a living, he was hurt, and then we had the predators standing there just waiting, waiting for somebody to knock on the door and say, hey, I've been hurt. He's not going down as just another addict, as a nobody, because he is somebody. He was somebody. He was my brother. He was an uncle. You know, he was a son. He, he was a husband. He, he was all of these things that America is established on.
1: Bull Priest was a coal miner. He got hurt on the job and eventually became dependent on pain medication to get him through the day. Debbie says her brother's experience mirrored many others. And one day, she tried to remember how many.
2: I sat down and wrote names of people that I knew. I, I knew personally. I knew what happened to them. And I thought one night I said, I just want to write down everybody I know that's OD, that I know for a fact OD. A front and back page, just right off the top of my head. Over 75 people that I knew. Personally. Personally. That died from the opioid
1: epidemic. Shortly before his death, Bull Priest got an Oxycontin and Lortab prescription. That's the brand name for one of the opioid painkillers. It came from a doctor named Don Kaiser. Dr. Kaiser worked at a clinic that Jim Woolley owned. Some people in the town call him Wooley. Woolley also owned the Save Right Pharmacy in Kermit. But Debbie Priest says there was a problem with that prescription. She says Dr. Kaiser never examined Bull.
2: He just took his $275 and said, what do you need, and wrote the prescription.
1: After Bull's death, Jim Woolley and Don Kaiser were investigated. Authorities wanted Dr. Kaiser to produce Bull's medical records. Debbie claims the doctor didn't have them.
2: He said, I need, I know he was injured in the mines, you know, and he wanted an MRI. He said, Do you have your brother's uh, medical records? And I said, Yes, I do. And he said, Well, I need that MRI.
1: Debbie says she was in a fog after Bull's death. And forgot to send the MRI over. A few weeks later, Dr. Kaiser's wife, Etta, came by. She used to be Debbie's sister in law. And she said, Hey, Debbie,
2: I, I need a favor. She said, Dawn sent me up here. She said, We've got to have Bull's MRI. I said, They are questioning Dawn for giving him that medication. So I was like, Okay, all right. Still in. In outer space, I was there, but I was just in a fog, you know. So I give it to her, and um, I walked out to the car with her. She puts it in the trunk, and she leaves. She said, "Well, I, you know, I appreciate this. I'll, I'll talk to you this week." And she left. And I came in in my bedroom. I get thinking, you know, what did I just do? Did I just help him kill my brother
1: and get away with it? Now. Etta Kaiser says she doesn't remember any of that. She says her husband never asked Debbie for Bull's MRI. Etta grew up in Kermit. She found her way to recreational drug use in her 20s. But she says she didn't like weed, and cocaine kept her up all the time. Then someone introduced her to Lortab, and she says, other than her child, it was the love of my life. But she only used it on occasion, Uh, That's because, at the time, she was an EMT, and she had regular drug tests. Then she met Don Kaiser, the doctor. And once they got married, uh, she didn't have to work anymore, and that meant no more drug tests. How bad did it get?
4: It, uh, it, well, sent me to prison, twice.
1: Etta says she used her husband's medical practice to get drugs.
4: I had decided that I had went to med school. (laughs) Also, what
1: you went to med school too?
4: I, I no, I, I thought that I did, <laughs> so I would call the pharmacies and or, or write out my own prescriptions.
1: Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So you're saying that, that you yeah. went, you went to med, You basically would forge your husband's? Yes. Uh, you would yes. forge his uh, yeah. signature yeah. and to to get your prescriptions.
4: Or or call them in and say that I was his nurse.
1: Etta served time in jail for aiding and abetting by fraud. Her husband, Dr. Don Kaiser, was sentenced to seven years in prison for conspiracy to distribute controlled substances. They're still married, but currently separated. Etta is sober and is now a licensed recovery coach. Despite all she's been through, Etta Kaiser believes it's too easy for people to blame the doctors and pharmacies involved. She firmly believes that she and others who abuse drugs need to be held accountable for their actions.
4: It's sad to see anyone lose their life to addiction. But when the government can start telling physician, physicians how to practice medicine, I think we're crossing into a line that just shouldn't be, you know, because there's such a gray area. What he'd done was allowed by the law, and, and that's and so he did nothing wrong there. Bull Priest died because Bull Priest was an addict all of his life. And that's the side truth. And the same thing would happen to me. If I don't stay in recovery, I will die. You have to take accountability for your part in everything. Everybody plays a part in every situation, just like this conversation we are having. I can go give my version of it, and and I can feel a completely different way than you, but I played a part in this. So if I don't like how it turned out, then, you know, my part was I sat down to do the interview. So there has to be a level of accountability.
1: There are plenty of perspectives about what happened in Kermit. However, many people agree there's a need for more recovery programs, especially in Mingo County. Before he died, Bull Priest was in rehab. He was only eligible for a three-day detox program, which was about an hour from his home. He had to ask Debbie to drive him there and pick him up. Bull could have been eligible for a 30-day program with a court order, but the Priest family couldn't coordinate that in time. Before that, Bull tried a methadone clinic. Debbie's husband would pick him up, every day at 6 a.m. and drive him nearly 30 miles away to the nearest clinic. It worked for a little while. And then I guess it just became demeaning
2: for him to have to come and ask somebody to take you, pay for your medicine, and and maybe he thought he was putting people out. I never made him feel that way. Maybe he felt he was less of a man or something.
1: Debbie says there are not enough treatment facilities in the region despite the high concentration of overdoses. And the facilities that are available for people like Bull?
2: They're hard to get in. They're expensive.
4: I mean, it just seems like they're in a no-win situation.
1: Etta says the system needs to change.
4: This is a serious problem. This is being swept under the rug. We need recovery centers. We need people, good trained people, to work them. The law enforcement need to be trained better to deal with, with this. Putting someone in jail does not get them clean. You know, so it is, it's a complete, systematic breakdown.
1: (laughs) Some of what's going on in Kermit is economic. Coal jobs are leaving West Virginia at an alarming rate, and there aren't enough jobs coming back into the state to replace what's lost. Some people have turned to selling drugs to make money, while others use them to cope with pain or just to cope with life. Etta Kaiser says it's harder now to get prescription pain pills, so some people with addictions are turning to illegal drugs like heroin, which can be laced with deadlier drugs like fentanyl. When we come back, we'll hear how some people handle addiction and treatment in Mingo County. We'll meet a man who is trying hard to stay sober. And we talk to a business owner who's trying to bring a new industry into the region. I'm Trey Kaye, and you're listening to Us and Them. Our show is supported in part by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. This episode is supported with a grant from the Claude worthington Benedum Foundation. In difficult times, music gives us peace, brings us together, and helps heal us. It calms our nerves and brightens our days. That's why we're bringing you classic episodes of Mountain Stage on air and in our podcast. This is Larry Gross, host of Mountain Stage. Find something that's familiar or brand new and feel the power of live music on our website, mountainstage.org. I'm Trey Kay, and you're listening to Us and Them from PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Recovery and resiliency. Those are the two things that stand out to me when I consider what I've learned from the people of Mingo County. Kermit made headlines during the opioid crisis. Now, some residents are in recovery and the community looks to build a future. This got me talking to my colleague, Emily Allen, She's a reporter with West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Emily has spent time in Mingo County and has learned some about how the area handles recovery. We wondered how the region's recovery programs are faring and whether the coronavirus has made for some changes. We went to Kermit expecting things to be different, and some are. Treatment and recovery look very, well, virtual. But Emily found that for others in recovery, Some of the same organizations that have supported and nurtured the region for decades are still doing just that.
5: The Big Laurel Learning Center sits on top of Newsome Ridge outside Kermit. Off the highway, it's about an eight-mile drive up a narrow, winding road.
6: It has morphed from a school into a hospitality and retreat center.
5: That's Rebecca Hooker. She lives on the land preserve. Her closest neighbors are Sister Kathy and Sister Gretchen who founded Big Laurel. There are over 400 acres,
6: um, multiple buildings, etc. cetera. So that is where we are.
5: Big Laurel has served the region for decades with outreach and education programs. And this is where 54-year-old Rebecca lives while she recovers from addiction. She stays in a little cabin with a high raised porch. Long waspy bugs and fat black bees buzz around the windows. A couple of kittens run through a partially opened front door. We're surrounded by fresh green foliage and trees that block the sun. Rebecca has lived in Mingo County since 2014, most of the time on Big Laurel, but Southern West Virginia has always been a second home.
6: My mother's family is from Maitland, West Virginia. Um, She was the first in her family to go to college and her first teaching job was in Atlanta uh, where she met my father. Um, So I was born and raised in Atlanta. Both were school teachers. So summer and Christmas I spent in Maitland.
5: Rebecca came back about seven years ago to recover from addictions to alcohol and cocaine. An AmeriCorps service position brought her to Big Laurel Today, she works at the farmer's market in Williamson about 40 minutes away and leads recovery support groups there. Rebecca had to put those meetings on hold in March because of the pandemic. She hopes to resume them soon.
6: I would take stuff to let them know I was thinking about them. Um, I made like 80 chili dogs and you know, just uh, uh, donuts and coffee and, and things like that.
5: Big Laurel is a secluded community So Rebecca's recovery looks very different from the people she helps in her groups.
6: I just happen to live in a location that is not conducive to drinking or drugging.
5: That isolation isn't just geographic. Rebecca has to use a device to connect to the digital world to boost her cell service.
6: I knew not to expect it because growing up and spending lots of time in my youth and young adulthood, there was no cable. There was party line telephones.
5: Its isolation has helped Southern West Virginia become the nation's ground zero when it comes to opioid painkillers. Rebecca Hooker knows recovery here can be tough.
6: Crack cocaine was my drug of choice. And crack cocaine is muscle memory and a craving. Um, it it's doesn't affect your body chemistry. And opioids and heroin, um are extremely difficult 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 to get off
5: from because of that physical change in body chemistry some advocate using medication to help people kick their opioid habit there are a growing number of facilities that offer medication assisted treatment to help a patient block their craving however
7: The treatment of of opioid use disorder is, is pretty highly regulated.
5: Dr. Matthew Christensen is a primary care physician in Huntington and an associate professor at Marshall University. A few years ago, Christensen was certified to prescribe treatment drugs. It took a change in state law for primary care providers to use that treatment for patients with an opioid addiction. Now, some providers want permission to offer medication-assisted treatment through telehealth to further increase a rural patient's access.
7: And there's always been this push towards more technology medicine, and there will always be a push for this. Um, But it takes a crisis somewhat like COVID-19 to really push us and sort of put our hand into, into trying it out and seeing how it goes.
5: COVID-19 forced the federal government to increase access for patients using phone and video treatment and therapy sessions. Christensen says that during lockdown, his clinic offered mostly virtual appointments. They'll continue to use telehealth for clients who need it.
7: And and they're certainly more convenient for patients. If they're at work, they can just step into the break room and get the phone call for 10 or 15 minutes, and then um, they're right back to work and they don't have to take a half day off to get to their doctor's visit.
5: But while some say telehealth can redefine medicine, Christensen says we should be careful when discussing patients in recovery.
7: It's nothing like a face-to-face visit where we talk honestly about the struggles that people have had and, and how they've and, and how they've worked through them and how they've um, you know had these triggers and avoided relapse.
5: The region needs support to expand the range of treatment options. Many hope local government will spend money from opioid lawsuit settlements where it matters, on things that can immediately help local residents. The city of Kermit filed a lawsuit against five opioid companies three years ago. It's still waiting on a settlement. That suit is in addition to complaints West Virginia filed in 2016, for which the state received a $37 million settlement.
1: That was my West Virginia public broadcasting colleague, Emily Allen. Emily also introduced me to someone in Kermit who's trying to help people get back on their feet.
0: I'm Sister Trace Carew. I'm a Franciscan sister of the Sacred Heart, and I am currently executive director of Christian Help in Kermit, West Virginia.
1: Christian Help is a nonprofit organization, nearly 30 years old. It's based in Central Florida but it has branches in other cities. It provides resources to the unemployed and underemployed to avoid homelessness. Sister Therese moved to Kermit 11 years ago from the Chicago area. It was one month after the big bust at the Save Right Pharmacy. She quickly learned to check the story of everyone who came to Christian help, asking for help.
0: If... Someone would come to me and say, I need a new tire so I can keep going to work. I would call and verify that they did work at McDonald's and in Inez, let's say. And after I got that, then I would work with Western Auto here in Kermit to provide a tire. But if they would return it to get the cash back to feed an addiction or maybe to pay their bills or maybe help their children. Let's give them some hope. Um, Matt would take the tire back, and then he would say, and I'll credit Sister's account because you didn't pay for the tire. I'm not giving you the money back. So the agencies that we work with, we had a good relationship with to most adequately assure that we were providing and not being scammed.
1: Christian help also provides food for those in need. And I wondered if during the pandemic, Sister Therese had seen an uptick in the number of people asking for help.
0: No, we're having less people come in and we don't have anybody struggling. The poor just got stimulus checks. They just got tax return checks. You wouldn't go for food at the food bank, dry beans and canned corn and mixed vegetables their income went up from what they're used to living on.
1: Sister says funding for Christian Help comes partially from federal and state grants.
0: We put up a certain amount of money and apply for grants to get vans to transport people. And, and that transportation is provided for free for the person going, and we go anywhere in Mingo County. Um, two days a week we'll go as far as Logan because f- as there's certain medical specialties that aren't provided in Mingo County, um, be it cancer treatment or to an orthopedic doctor or maybe a dialysis center. The one in Logan might be closer to them. So two days a week we go to- as far as Logan, which is a good 45 minutes each way from here.
1: sister Therese started talking to me about a guy named michael he's one of the people who gets support from christian help we're not using his full name because of the stigma of being homeless he's now sober but after a string of events he's found himself living under the bridge in kermit For a while, earlier this year, Sister Therese and others would give Michael a lunch, knowing that it was probably the only meal that he'd get that day.
0: How I got to know Michael better was COVID hit, and we sent all our staff home, and by the grace of God, we were able to do it with pay, but until like March 17th to the beginning of June, well, then we weren't there to be his meal every day five days a week and it's still freezing cold and i (laughs) invited him to eat at my house which is two blocks from christian help and to get in out of the cold because i didn't want the fire department to tell me they found him frozen under the kermit bridge when i knew he lived there i just you can't do it (laughs) i can't do it his mom used to come into the store and shop and she since has just died of um, physical complications, nothing related to opioids. But Michael's under the bridge because of his opioid addiction.
1: Hey Michael. Hey Michael. I'm Trey Kay from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. I was uh, I was wanting to know if I could come down and talk to you for a second. Sure, I Okay. All right. Yeah, it's a kind of steep, steep uh, hill here with a bunch of rocks. You ever get hurt walking down here? I
8: a couple times, especially if you get night.
1: So, to folks who uh, don't know where we are, tell me where we are.
8: We're under the Klamath Bridge right across the river from Kentucky, we're West Virginia.
1: And you got a tent under here?
8: Yeah. Yeah, I've actually moved up to a tent.
1: What, did you have something before?
8: I actually lived up under the, on up under the bridge, up in the rafters, kind of built me a bed up there uh, during the winter. And I've been here since December 14th. And I built me a bed up there and I I kind of, a friend gave me this tent that's uh, a little cooler down here closer to the river. uh, not as many bugs, bother mosquitoes. The to keep, and I can lock some of my stuff up. I've been robbed down here a couple of times. Actually, people steal my food. Just, just ridiculous stuff that you See, wouldn't think people were capable of. But uh, when people need money for dope or whatever, they'll come and steal whatever they can get from you. I mean, honestly.
1: At first, Michael was hesitant to talk to me.
8: It's just because I. I mean, uh, every addict, once you're an addict, you're always judged by that. It depends your life. And I don't know, it just seems like you can't ever recover no no matter what you do, people always judge
1: you by that. Michael worked in the mines. He would go underground and work on the batteries that kept everything running. He says the work was brutal, physically and mentally taxing. One day, a coworker saw him struggling and gave him a little pill. He told Michael it would help him get through the day. As strange as this may sound, people I've talked to for this story say it happens a lot. That was Michael's first opioid experience, but his addiction came later. He felt ill and went to see a doctor in Kermit.
8: They didn't see me for any x-rays, any tests, anything whatsoever. The nurse, the nurse practitioner, honestly, I don't know if she was sleepy or high, but she was almost falling off her chair. I have no clue why she, why she wrote the
1: prescription she wrote me. Michael says the nurse prescribed hydrocodone, and he went to the Save Right Pharmacy in Kermit to pick it up. And that's the only place you could go pick them up. You didn't have an
8: option to go to any other pharmacy. They would call it in, actually. You, they, you didn't even get a prescription. They would call it in, and you would just go pick it up, really, without even knowing what you were picking up until you got there.
1: Michael says the rest is history. When that prescription ran out, he felt worse than he ever had. What he calls dope sick. That was the beginning of his addiction. Since then, Michael has turned things around. He takes Suboxone as a treatment medication. He goes to counseling and passes drug tests. He's doing everything he's supposed to but he's run into a problem trying to get his life back together. Michael owes back child support payments. And because of that, he can't find housing. It's a vicious cycle. Without an address, Michael struggles to find work. Without a job, he can't pay back child support. And if he has outstanding child support, he can't get housing. I ask Michael if he thinks this area Will recover. Thought
8: it might before this pandemic thing came about, but now coal industry, from what I'm hearing, had already went downhill drastically. And this area, I don't—that's the main source of the income. There's no other jobs that pay. I mean, and coal supported everything else around here. We were kind of taking advantage, advantage of. I mean, really so that other people could benefit. And I just hope eventually something can be done about it. I mean, there's just too many people who've suffered. Too many families have been broken up and too many lives lost. It seems like it's never ending.
1: I'm standing in front of Town Hall here in Kermit. All this talk about where jobs will be in the future and how people can make a living here uh, makes me wonder about Kermit's future. Here in what has been West Virginia's coal country, there are some cities and towns that have gone after funding and grants to create a fresh approach, luring in new employers and and creating jobs. There is the prospect of settlement money from lawsuits against the big drug manufacturers and distributors. In some places, that money has helped create local treatment facilities to help people struggling with addiction. But Kermit has seen none of that money yet. Sister, you have tried to help me with regard to connecting with some people here in Kermit. I've I've tried to talk to Fire Chief Tomahawk Priest And he's basically kind of sent a message to me that he's not interested in talking. You tried to connect me with the mayor and why do you think they don't want to talk?
0: Because I think reporters from every level of probably journalism and broadcasting and political arena have been now to Kermit. And it's getting old. I think they want it behind them instead of keep resurfacing it. They want to just move on. I don't know what move on exactly is in a healthy sense for the whole community, but I think they're feeling like a sense of hopelessness and a rehashing over and over and over again.
1: When Sister Teresa explained it to me, I could understand where they were coming from. Previous media attention didn't change anything for the better, so why keep dwelling on the negative? Kermit's mayor, Charles Sparks, was willing to talk with me, just not on tape. He does not want economic development tied to the drug treatment industry. In fact, he sent me just to the edge of town to check out one of the city's most recent developments. One chapter of Kermit's future sits amidst its past showing a resilient use for an abandoned mine. The old Burning Creek Mine property is now home to Blue Acre Appalachian Aquaponics. An 11,000 square foot facility will produce both fish and vegetables. They hope to have five full-time employees and give free tours to anyone who's interested in learning more about aquaponics. Money for the new venture came from the direction of former Congressman Evan Jenkins and the Mingo County Redevelopment Authority. The hope is that the business plays a role in redeveloping food supply, not just for Kermit, but for the entire state. Christian Williams is co-manager of the aquaponics business. He grew up in Mingo County and says his great-grandfather used to work in the mine at this very location.
9: And in 1951, it had a, a very bad explosion that killed several men and their grave markers right next to the caboose out here, including uh, my great-grandfather who was here. He miraculously survived the event, but he,
1: your, he damn it your, your great-grandfather?
9: Yes, sir. He actually worked here. He, was, he happened to be out of the mine that day, working on a—I think it was an engine, and the mine exploded. And he was supposed to have been inside, but survived it.
1: Christian remembers how this area used to look when he was a kid.
9: We used to have a driving theater, a steakhouse, a piggly wiggly, we had all kinds of things here and all that is gone. Even when I was little it was still around, but it was starting to go out of business then in the early nineteen nineties.
1: In a way, one of the things that kind of replaced it was kind of an economy that had to do with with um, prescription opioids.
9: Yes, I believe so, yes. A lot of it people lost hope, you know, they there wasn't many job opportunities around here to really replace that those jobs that were lost and they a lot of them just turned to that, I'm afraid.
1: The Mingo County Redevelopment Authority helped fund Blue Acre Aquaponics through the abandoned mine fund.
9: It's a fund that is used to reclaim former mine areas. Like they had to reclaim the mine portals and seal them off and then they reconstructed this land here to put this building on it. Why do you think Kermit got it? Got this, got this facility. Well, we had the, this was a really promising site because it was already kind of flat to begin with. And it was right next to the highway here and the town really pushed for it. And the Radio authority wanted something for the Northern part of Mingo County, like to help
1: it out too. When you say help it out, why help it out?
9: Well, there isn't many other businesses around here. Like, you know, you, there's little mom and pop stores and stuff, but the ones that remain standing. But other than that, there's not all that much. And this was something that could really help, especially with the food market. There isn't, you know, food has kind of gone up here recently, you know.
1: Christian says he's ready for Kermit to be known for something positive. And he hopes this endeavor is one step in the right direction for the town.
9: What what is your hope? I hope that it does really well. I mean, we're giving it our all that we can put it up as fast as we can. And hopefully, you know, we'll have plenty of good food and uh, good fish for the local population to buy and be able to sustain it for a long time. (laughs)
1: Talking with people in Kermit over the past few weeks has given me a new perspective of this area. And it's made me see how important funding and grants are to revitalizing it. One thing that could define the future for Kermit is the outcome of opioid lawsuits. I asked investigative reporter and author Eric Eyre if he thinks the settlement money from the lawsuits will help change things.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm really concerned about that because uh, they're getting close to a, a national settlement from what I've been reading. And the way the national settlement would work is that the individual towns and counties and tribal governments, they could use whatever settlement monies they, they receive for whatever purpose they want. So if they wanted to buy a, a trash truck, for instance, or hire an extra police officer, they could do that. In lieu of treatment, and that's the real need that we're going through now. I think people need to understand that to to treat opioid use disorder, in many cases, it takes three to five years of intense services, and that 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 has not been happening. We had the uh, we had a settlement, a small settlement of with Maricourseburg and, and Cardinal Health of thirty million dollars back in two thousand seventeen. The state got that money and. Of course, the lawyers got a third of it, but uh, the rest of the money went towards treatment mostly in the northern part of the state and the southern part of the state still doesn't have a long-term residential facility.
1: Do you know for for a fact that, that there are a great number of people in the southern part of the state, maybe more than in the northern part of the state, who are in need of these services?
3: Yeah, there's um, there's a real demand at the. they have a, a large number of Suboxone Clinics, which uh, is used to treat opioid use disorder. You can't go anywhere in the southern part of the state without running to somebody that knows somebody that's still suffering from opioid use disorder. Yeah, the treatment needs are are, are real. This whole COVID-19, I'm concerned, has is, is exacerbated the opioid epidemic. How so? Because people being isolated, you know, that. of course that's changed over the last couple of weeks, but for a long time, they were shut out of getting group therapy for months. Um, we heard that we've heard anecdotally that there's been an uptick of overdose deaths, but um, the group the group therapy people having to they they try to they try to do this one on one therapy on online or through Zoom, but a lot of people in these areas don't have uh, a broadband internet connection to do that. And, you know, they say that uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. And and during this COVID-19, we haven't had much connection.
1: Eric has spent a lot of time in Kermit. And with all he knows about the area, he thinks recovery for this region is possible. I asked him what lessons we can learn from the opioid experience in Mingo County and what needs to happen to prevent people from abusing the system.
3: This was no different than a cartel, and and Pablo Escobar and and, uh, El Chapo couldn't have set up a better system. And then you had had the, the DEA, a revolving door with the DEA with the drug companies. You had DEA lawyers and staff going to work for the drug companies after they left the agency, and then you had People going back to work at the drug industry, so they all knew one another. They all knew what was going on, and nobody wanted to, to uh, reveal this, the secrets because everybody was making a lot of money off of it. Billions of dollars.
1: Toward the end of our conversation, Eric reflected on the impact of his reporting and the resulting investigation and the lawsuits
3: until our reporting came along the narrative as you mentioned earlier was let's blame the attic it's all their fault um i think that now we see that there was just this uh concerted system that worked like a well-oiled machine that was about making money at the expense of the health of and safety of the people of, of of the country
1: I've talked to a lot of people in Kermit, West Virginia. They have their eye on the future. They're working to create something new here, and and there's a lot of energy for change and a large range of possibilities. With the lawsuit settlements, there may even be money to pay for improvements and development. But that's still to be determined, and it's up to the community to decide what the future's gonna look like. You've been listening to Us and Them. Our team for this show is me, Trey Kay, Samantha Gatzik, and Kate Smith. Special thanks to West Virginia Public Broadcasting and Emily Allen for additional reporting. And special thanks to Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist, Eric Eyre. Michael Lipton and Tristram Lozow wrote and performed the Us and Them show music. Mark Lerner designed our logo. Lelaina Price helps us with images for the web. The marvelous people at PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting make Us and Them possible. So do grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the West Virginia Humanities Council, and the CRC Foundation. This episode is supported with a grant from the Claude Worthington-Benedim Foundation. Us and Them was originally developed with assistance from the mentorship program at AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. We'll see you next time on Us and Them.
5: Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.